Pure Media Presentation. Hello, this is Randy. Randy Mueller, Ryan Lindsay. How are you? Hey, Doing great. How are you? <laughs> Good. It's been way too long. Hello, world. My name is Ryan Lindsay, and this is my podcast, Self Quarantine, presented by Fusha Media. It's the podcast with frank and honest conversations about sports and life. From the sporting world to the real world of dealing with this pandemic. If you like the show, please rate and review on the app that you found us in the first place. It really, really helps. It allows us to grow the product for the future. Oh, and tell a friend. The more the merrier. Follow and interact with us on social media. Twitter, SQuarantinePod. Instagram, SelfQuarantinePod. Our company accounts on both platforms are at Fusha Media. We post promotional videos and logos on that week's episode to hopefully hook you in so you'll listen to some or all of that week's conversation. This week's unofficial sponsor of the podcast is Wall Men Shaver. That's Wall, W-A-H-L. Thanks to Wall Shavers and my neighbor having a brand new one that he hadn't even used so that I get my first haircut in two months. I was this close to the man bun. So with a little help from Wall and YouTube, my lovely wife was able to perform a successful first haircut, which if this pandemic continues, will be many more. So when a pandemic happens, it's Wall to the rescue. That's wall shavers. It saved me and it can save you too. Last week was the first virtual NFL draft. Considering everything that could happen doing a completely remote draft from many different locations around the country, it was unbelievably successful. So much so that it might change the way they do this annual event. The NFL Draft is one of those events that I've been marking on my calendar and been watching religiously for years. It's also one of those events that you either really like or you don't understand people like me who really like it. I can't speak for others, but I know why I like it. I love football. I love the NFL. I like to build things. And I would always cherish the opportunity to build my own team. It's also probably why I like fantasy football. Also, unlike the NBA and Major League Baseball, teams can find great players and even Hall of Famers after the first round, unlike the NBA draft. And unlike MLB's draft, it doesn't take two to four years to find out if your draft pick is even going to contribute to your organization. In the NFL, you might be moving on from a player that doesn't make a difference after two, let alone four years. Since college, the NFL Draft has been an event that has helped me stay connected to one of my good friends, Greg Gallup. Through the years, life would get in the way. There would be times where we didn't speak for months, but we always talked around the draft. We both consider ourselves armchair GMs and would always talk about the Seahawks and what they should do in the draft, and what they actually did. There were bad years, but there were also good ones too. Which leads to this week's guest. Randy Mueller ran the draft for the Seattle Seahawks, the New Orleans Saints, and the Miami Dolphins. In 2000, he was named NFL Executive of the Year when he was with the Saints. He's been evaluating pro football talent since 1983. I got to know Randy when we were both working at ESPN in the early 2000s, but I was a huge fan of his ever since he was drafted Seahawks, including a certain left tackle who became a Hall of Famer that we're definitely going to talk about. He has tons of great stories and memories that will give you a behind-the-scenes view of the National Football League, including knowing that your team was going to move and you couldn't tell anyone. We started a conversation talking about his latest job, that ended, like it has for a lot of Americans, being laid off because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Randy was the GM for the XFL team in Houston, the Houston Roughnecks. I asked Randy 
why the league owner, Vince McMahon of WWE fame, pulled the plug on the XFL faster than he did the first time. You know, that's a good question. I think it was, you know, only a couple days after that first NBA game when everything broke. Mm-hmm. And it, as we all know, things happened really fast. <laughs> yes, it um, did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was. We were headed to New York to play our sixth game of the season, and and I have heard this through the grapevine that L.A. was going to Seattle in the XFL, and I believe we had just played Seattle, and after that, I believe a player or two on their team tested positive, and so uh, that kind of yeah. threw everything into a different pot. As the now, what do we do? Seemed like hey, we got to figure this out now for the long run. And we were surprised when it did shut down, though, because of it, because we thought we'd had another week or two of playing for sure. And nobody had really thought this through. So um, it was a shame. Yeah. At that point, uh, it, the idea was maybe we pick up at the end of the, you know, virus season, so to speak, and, and continue to play. And for sure, we'll play next year. Well, that lasted about two or three weeks. And then Vince McMahon uh, filed for bankruptcy and the whole thing uh, went under Chapter 11. And I guess. I'm no business expert, but it's a way to reallocate your assets. So that's what happened. And there went the XFL up in smoke. So, um, yeah, we're all a little bit of a victim of that. And it kind of caught us all off guard. If no pandemic, how long do you think the XFL lasts? Oh, I think it's for real. I think we had proved there was a really good market for it. The ratings were pretty good. The quality of play, and again, I only have the NFL to compare it to. The quality of play was outstanding. Um, we were we were getting twenty thousand a game in our stadium in Houston, so we were, you know, one of the one of the teams that was doing well. I don't think there's any question that the NFL was rooting for it, because as you've seen now, this G League and pathway to professionalism and all that in basketball, mm-hmm. I'm not so sure that at some point the XFL wouldn't have been that for the NFL. So I think everybody was rooting for it, and I think it would have lasted a couple years. Well, maybe maybe who knows, but I think it at least had a couple years. Uh, before a judgment day was going to come to extend, that's for sure. So why pull the plug so early then? I mean, especially if you can bring it back next season. I just don't understand that at all. Especially you put all this time and effort and you you coax Oliver Luck, who I've right. got to know from a friend of a friend who played with him at West Virginia, who's super smart. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you go through all this effort and then one bit of adversity and you say, never mind, I'm closing up shop. There were some things in the XFL team's contracts with stadiums that pertain to the following year and maybe even further that mm. Vince and the XFL were going to be on the hook for. And I think that the, just the doubt and the cloud of how long is this going to last? Mm. You know, I think he was willing to at first, uh, you know, kind of take it in the shorts and get us through it and come back. Again, once uh, everything kept lingering, I think that put more doubt in his mind. And I think it's a matter of simply just cutting his losses at that point. Uh, the way I understand it is the whole company is up for sale. So I guess people can, you know, uh, hold their fingers crossed and hope somebody buys it and, and resurrects it. Because I do think it's a valuable asset and an entity that could be a moneymaker in the future. What about the NFL? Do you see them possibly looking at it or doing their own spring league again? Or do you think they're so burned from the World League of American Football that they've kind of sworn it off? You know, the the World League of American Football that became NFL Europa was a, a really good thing for us on the football side. Oh, yeah. My t- in, in my time in Seattle, I remember sending six or eight players every year. Stan Gelbach. <laughs> John Kitten is the yeah. Kurt Warner, Kurt Warner yeah. Yeah, all those guys came from that league. So Hall of Famers. It's a, it's, it's a viable thing. And you say the NFL, and, and again, nobody's talking about expansion under this virus uh, cloud, but mm-hmm. it's there for the taking for somebody to, to uh, come in and say, hey, let's get this thing rolling. I think the TV deals that Vince McMahon had showed me that the content is desirable. And that's the big thing. If it's desirable in the spring and it's 10 weeks, I think from a football standpoint, it's surely desirable from all the entities involved. So there's a lot of pluses to it, no doubt about it. Unfortunately, it's a little out of my budget. (laughs) Mine too. (laughs) So you you were also, last year, you were associated with the AAF. 
right. the Alliance of American Football. What happened with them? I think that was strictly smoke and mirrors. That <laughs> okay. was one that, okay. you know, I, 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 I kind of got on board with that because of Bill Polian, who's always been a mentor of mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, if it was good enough for Bill, it was going to be good enough for me. And uh, Dennis Erickson, who's been a long lifetime friend of mine, was the coach in Salt Lake. So I jumped on board there as their GM based on the people that were involved. Come to find out, they never had the money. It never got put together on financial solid ground. And so that was a matter of time. That was doomed when it started because of the money not really being there. And, of course, we're not privy to that as yeah. we're running yeah. these teams. So that was purely financial uh, and completely different than the XFL, which was bankrolled by Vince McMahon, who obviously has the money to, to, to have lasting power. Not so much with the AAF. That ended up being a farce. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people were like you, just because the name Bill Polian, how much yep. weight it carries in football, that, you know, like you said, if it's good enough for Bill, it's good enough for me. Yep. So I can only imagine what how Bill Polian felt when the whole thing fell apart. I think he's still rocked by it. I, yeah. I speak with Bill or text with him occasionally and the people that are around him mm-hmm. you know this had his name on it this yeah. was like kicking the balls for him yeah you know? his he, legacy he, he put everything in it that he had and a legacy was important to him and uh, for it to go out like it did with a flicker you know uh, just some bad financial Fart decisions by <laughs> people above us yeah yeah it was crazy so before they pulled it off, what did you think about the NFL moving forward with the new year, free agency, and the draft, especially with what uh, everything's going on and every other sport was like, yeah, we're done for a while. As we all know, TV kind of runs the show, and uh, we saw the ratings of the draft. Yes, I did. think the only sports stuff we've been able to talk about were NFL free agencies, and, and that's been a big deal. I believe, and, and, and you would know probably better than I, during our ESPN time, the most watched show ESPN had other than live games was the NFL draft. And it tells me, I, I, my guess is it's probably still way up there. So that was going to happen as long as they could pull it off mm-hmm. and be safe. And I think there was some skepticism by some people who didn't know they could pull it off. But I think for all intent purposes, it had to be viewed as a success. Oh, I think it was beyond a success. I think it was yeah. beyond their wildest dreams. I mean, what do they say about uh, necessity breeding invention or something like that? So, yep. so, yeah, and I think that's basically what happened is they were like, well, we need to do this. How can we do it? We have the technology. You know, when you're a billion-dollar company, you can kind of come up with things. What do you think you, the NFL is going to take from this abnormal draft that they might incorporate into a normal year like next year, hopefully? Yeah, I think that's the $6 million question, right? I mean, that's there, there was some cool things, you know, the – what did you like? What did you like seeing? I loved seeing the guys operate on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, I also liked the way ESPN handled it in in this sense. Um, there wasn't a lot of fluff. There wasn't a lot of stories on. Again, I, I'm all for the kids telling their stories, but sometimes I, I feel like ESPN lets that get out of hand, mm-hmm. you know, and that that rules the day, the 10 minute you know, sermon on, on where everybody came from and all that, that, and, and sometimes really just focused on the negatives. I thought this was meat and potatoes. It was mainly football. Um, you know, it'd be nice if ESPN had some people on there that actually had made a trade or picked a player, but <laughs> yeah. you know, I guess that's maybe they shoot for that next year, but, yeah. um, but I did think the guys they had did a really good job. I thought Daniel Jeremiah was awesome in his role. And uh, maybe he filled in for Todd McShay, who obviously we all know was sick. But yeah. I thought DJ did a really good job. Um, I would have liked to seen a, a coach or a player or somebody, like I said, that had pulled that lever before that could actually tell him uh, what some of the things they were seeing uh, from that seat point of view. And that didn't happen. But I do think there'll be a lot of things they take into the following years. I'm not sure Mike Frabel's... Um, <laughs> house and that setup he had is ever going to leave my brain what the hell was that he's cost me sleep the last few nights just because that was the craziest that was so disturbing that was so disturbing yeah it was disturbing yeah i was like what is this you know well it's like (laughs) at first i thought oh they're screwing up and then i'm like you know what they're just playing us all 
Especially, yeah. especially when you saw the guy and you saw the reflection of the guy in the bathroom. I'm like, who, who doesn't shut the bathroom after like they're age five? For goodness that sake, that brings more meaning to that term. <laughs> shut the front door. You know? <laughs> it was crazy, and those kids of his, oh, like they were, man, it was somewhere between uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and uh, Close Encounters. You know, it was just, it was disturbing. I had to. when it all ended i'm still running that through my mind what the heck was that i just wonder if howard stern gave him a bunch of money just to do it or or barstool or one of those one of those entities yeah Yeah, it it was was. bizarre no doubt well there's that and did you see the the twitter one of the we know where roger goodell does the uh pick and then they have the zoom video of all the fans for that team did you see the one of the jets with the uh the guy with the shirt off Flexing? No, I didn't see yes. that. You can, you can find that on Twitter. By the way, what is your Twitter, Twitter handle before I forget to uh, mention it again? I am at Randy Mueller underscore. So. And that's, that's how the professional uh, podcasters do it. They just kind of weave it in. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Uh, no that problem. Two bucks will get me a start. <laughs> maybe if well, you're maybe lucky. Maybe three bucks now. Yeah, if you're lucky. <laughs> so let's say you're the GM of whatever said team. Going into it, what would have been the biggest obstacles for you to pull that off? And what would have been the biggest questions that you would have had for the NFL, your ownership group, and your IT department? Right. I think the IT stuff is so foreign to me that I'm going to assume there are smarter people in the room that can sort that out. Yeah. So I would have to set that aside and figure that's going to be done. I think the, the hardest things for most would have been things that I would have enjoyed because – I really love the process and I like the communication process and the consensus building. And when we sit down and do that in a room for a month and a half prior to the draft, those are some of the funnest times on the job. Now we'd have had to do that in a zoom fashion this year. And I think you could have still got that done. Um, Having just built two teams from scratch, like I did in the AAF and the XFL from really my kitchen table alone, I think that would have been valuable experience to go through a draft like this. Again, once your consensus is built, you would be surprised at how little dialogue, communication, any of that goes on on draft day in draft rooms because the, the big heavy lifting is done. So mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't be surprised that in future years they don't set it up a little bit like it is and the GMs are okay with it. They don't have people beacon in their ear. They don't have a lot of distractions uh, when the work is already done, the haze in the barn, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so I think most teams had to get it done and ahead of time, um, get everything lined out like they normally do. And then it's up to these GMs. And I think the the GMs that kind of grew up on the evaluating side have a little more advantage because if there's a chink in the armor or if there's a curve they didn't see coming, they can still fall back on what did I see on tape? What did I see on film? I don't have to rely on another scout or a coach or anybody telling me what they saw because I saw it with my own eyes and that's what I do for a living. So I think those GMs, and again, we'll see when we go back two or three years from now to look at this draft, my guess is those GMs are going to come out ahead in the long run because of that. And I'd love to see that stay into, into uh, the formula for ESPN draft days. So I know that you probably had your own little big board up and, and uh, did, did a bunch of work. How would you have rated the top QBs? What was your top one through four? Well, I think Joe Burrow was heads and tails the best quarterback. I've heard a, a lot of analysts, especially the guys on TV, say, well, if Tua was healthy, it would have been a – no, it wouldn't have been a tough pick. <laughs> You're talking about 6'4", six, 6'5", six, can operate in the pocket, doesn't need to have a clean pocket all the time, going to get stronger. Um all, all the skill sets you're looking for. That, to me, made it fairly obvious. I think every year, beyond a quarterback or two, we invent quarterbacks because there's it's such a quarterback-driven mm. league yeah. and the need is so crazy that we invent quarterbacks. Totally. Having said that, I mean, there, there are some guys this year that jumped up there for, I think, reasons of people just valuing quarterbacks so much. Um, I think Tua's skill set is outstanding obviously he is a proven commodity when healthy 
um, I got a little nervous with him in that just because the pocket isn't always clean in the NFL, you don't get to stand in there, run your RPOs and, and not get hit. That, that's what he did at Alabama for the most part. He was a clean operator. He's nifty enough to get away from some pressure. But I, I mean, I had the same questions everybody else did with his durability. Um, Justin Herbert, to me, was a little bit of a creation. Um, the Chargers had really no choice but to draft Justin Herbert. They had kicked the can down the road year after year after year and not replaced Philip Rivers. Mm-hmm. Now Philip Rivers replaced them, so they have no choice. They got to pick one. So they were going to have to pick either Tua or Herbert or whatever quarterback was there. Again, they had no choice. So I'm not sure if they didn't pick Justin Herbert, he doesn't fall down quite a bit. Um, I think he was a safer pick in their minds than Jordan Love. Jordan Love, to me, the fourth quarterback in the in that round mm-hmm. is the wild card. And I understand why. Um, I understand why Green Bay did it. I see the upside in him maybe more than any of these guys. So I understand it. But he would have been a hard one for me to turn down um, if you're sitting there with him and Justin Herbert both. So that would have been a discussion and one I'd want to build a consensus on. Obviously, Green Bay had him rated ahead of Justin Herbert. Yeah. I guarantee you, they, they fall back and then they trade back up to get him. That kid was in the top 10 on their board. I guarantee it. You wouldn't make a move like that if you didn't, one, have a consensus, and two, have him way up high on your board. So there's that's where you start to get gray. I think Burrow won two or two if you're okay with them medically. But after that, you know, whether it's Herbert or Jordan Love, that's a question that I think probably half the teams would have one up there, half the teams would have uh, the other one up there. And it just kind of depends on your environment and the system you're going to run as to which one you'd like. So what was it about Justin you didn't like? Um, I don't think I disliked him. I felt like his instincts for the position were kind of his memory. He would he, he memorized certain things at Oregon, but if it didn't go just uh, as, a, as, as they drew it up on cards, I felt like he struggled a little bit. I didn't really see a playmaker at all. I saw a structure, which is fine. But I just didn't see a guy that if everything broke down could go make a play. System quarterback? System quarterback? System quarterback for sure, mm-hmm. yes. And and I in in uh the love kid, I saw a guy that if things break down, he can still go make a play for you. Now he may screw it up a time or two, but I think you can harness that and get it out of him. So again, it's not that I dislike Herbert. I think it's just when they say it's why Baskin Robbins has thirty one flavors. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Were you surprised that Jordan Love lasted that long then? I mean, late, you know, mid 20s. A little bit. Yes, Mm -hmm. a little bit. I thought someone would see him. And again, I'm not saying he's Mahomes, Mm -hmm. but he's Mahomes like, you know, I do think it's a really good fit for them in Green Bay. And I've heard Green Bay just getting hammered by media and everybody else. But it makes total sense to me. Some of these teams and, and I'm one of them. Some of these teams view the second quarterback more important than they do starters at other positions. Hmm. An example for, and I, and I totally agree with that. When we built the Houston XFL team, um, we got our franchise quarterback who was PJ Walker, who you may have seen signed with Carolina at the end of our season, but we spent our first round pick on another quarterback. I wanted to nail that position down. I wanted two guys because I think it's a two man job. Um, all you have to do is go back and look at, the year Peyton Manning got hurt in Indianapolis and they weren't a good team, but we always said without Peyton Manning, they were a 500 team. Well, without Peyton Manning, they were way worse than that. They didn't have a backup. They did not. No, they did not have a backup. And I think certain GMs value that. Mm -hmm. So I understand um, why Green Bay did it. I understand a little bit why Philly did what they did too. And and for some of us, I like that pick by the way, is really important and, and I get it. I like that pick. The Philly one? Yeah, because Wentz hasn't been able to stay healthy. Yep. And I think with Jalen, he offers a lot of the same things that Taysom Hill offers the Saints. You have Mm -hmm. to study that. You have to Mm -hmm. make sure that if you're playing Philly that week, that, hey, especially with somebody as creative as Doug Peterson and things that he can do with two quarterbacks. I mean, he won a Super Bowl off the Philly special. 
Yeah, that's no doubt. No doubt. And I agree with you. I love the pick. And if you go back to that 17 season or 18 when they won the Super Bowl mm-hmm. with Nick Foles, yeah. their system changed when Wentz went down. It went to more of an RPO, more of a semi-slight short roll stuff. He did the things that Nick Foles did good. I think that's what you're going to see with this kid as well. And this kid's bigger, stronger. I don't think he's a, the accomplished passer that um, Foles is or was at that time, but I see a guy getting better at it. He couldn't throw the ball and hit the broad side of a barn when he was at Alabama, but he really progressed as a passer in Oklahoma, and you've got to give them credit for 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 developing that. I think that's only going to get better. Like you say, with Doug Peterson, I think he stands a really good chance of, again, being a valuable asset to them and all of a sudden opens up their offense um, to where they don't have to you know, uh, cross their fingers and and uh, be scared to death that Carson's going down again. They can run the same stuff they ran with Nick Foles with Jalen Hurts in the game. So I'm with you. I like the pick, too, and they're getting killed for it. But, again, I, I, I think they see it as not only a weapon, like you say with comparing him to, to uh, the New Orleans guy. I, I agree with that. But I think this kid might be a better passer in the long run. He's bigger, stronger. That's for sure. This guy's a big kid. He's an athlete. I mean, he, yeah, he's an athlete. Yeah, he and a lot of people at Alabama thought, well, they're just going to ride him and, and make him a running back, you know. And he's the, he became a better passer than anybody thought. So I like the pick. I like the kid. The other thing is you can't just poo-poo the fact that Jalen Hurts is a great leader, a great kid, and he was a productive college player in two different top five programs. He's got great and, yeah, I mean, he's got it. He's got a lot of grit. Give him credit. Yep. And he never yep. pouted. He did it the right way. Yep. You know, everyone told him he couldn't do something. He said, I'll show you. Oh, yeah. Yep. I, I In second round, I, I think that's a great pick. Yep. Who are the top five uh, players on the Randy Mueller big board? <laughs> well, I think the first two went off just like I thought they would and should have. Joe Burrow and Chase Young were mm-hmm. really good. Uh, no question there. I really like the Derrick Brown kid, the defensive mm. lineman from Auburn that fell all the way to Carolina at seven. I think when you pick up top like that, you better get a skill position guy that can either really run or really throw. And beyond that, let's get the big boys because that's where you win. And I think he was would have been, for me, um, a top choice. Um, I think a couple other guys that fell, I really like the Ruggs kid that Vegas got at 12. He's a freak. Uh, yeah, he can really run. Um, even if they don't throw him the ball, he'll change the way people defend them because of that speed. Really good player. And if I was picking an offensive lineman, it probably would have come down to the Tristan Wirfs from Iowa mm-hmm. or the Beck- Beckton kid that ended up going to the Jets. Those two guys are potential, uh, every down, tough, hard-nosed, good players that they would have probably been in my top five or six for sure. So that those were probably the best players in my opinion. What do you think of Simmons from Clemson? You know, I, I I struggle a little bit with him in that I think he's he's become a victim of his own strengths. You know, the fact that he's so versatile and and plays everywhere. He reminded me a little bit of Miles Jack, but less explosive. People in Seattle remember Miles mm-hmm. Jack, obviously, yeah. at UCLA, and we thought he would be a transcendent safety. Well, he's played linebacker and been a pretty good player. I think the biggest thing with Simmons is you're going to have to. You need to figure out what he does really good and play him at that one spot right now because everybody's so good in the NFL. You're not going to be able to throw a bunch of stuff at this kid and have him play two or three different spots and be a matchup nickel guy. Shoot, Mika Fitzpatrick couldn't even do that, and he's a really good athlete. That's Mm -hmm. one of the things that got him out of Miami. He got him in Pittsburgh, and it took Pittsburgh one day to say, okay, this guy's a safety, and that's where we're leaving him. You know, So I think with with, with, – Simmons, you just need to find out, and I've heard that they're going to play him at linebacker now, and that's fine, but he's got to play one spot, and that would have made me nervous. It's almost like they moved him around so much, he never got great at any one thing, mm-hmm. and you got to be great at one thing to play in the NFL. Who were you most impressed with? What teams? Um, I think Miami did a really good job. Now, it's hard for them not to, but they had three first-round picks. I thought they did a really good well, they job. They set themselves up. Yeah, they, they, they set themselves up leading up to the draft, mm-hmm. too. What I like about what Chris Greer and Brian Flores have done there, they filled some holes before the draft even started in free agency, which led me to believe they had options on draft day. I always felt like 
that plan of free agency uh, being used with the draft is the best plan. If you can fill enough holes in free agency, then it allows you in the draft to not have to draft a quarterback or not have to do something and reach on a guy. Yeah. You can take the best player on the board. And if you can take the best player on the board in those first couple rounds, you're going to build a, a better team than if you're just automatically filling needs all the time and really bypassing better players to fill a need. So I thought Miami did a really good job. I would rate them up there high. Yeah, I think all the I think that's what the best teams do. I think that yep. you tell me if I'm wrong. You never want to draft from desperation. You want to draft because not by a position. You want to draft the best player, right? And and you would be shocked, Ryan, how many teams don't do that. <laughs> they bet. just don't. They're either under the under pressure to fill a need of yeah. some kind by by the coach and the GM either not being on the same page or not being on the same contract year or agendas you know, have changed. Somebody speaks louder in the room than somebody else. It's crazy how many teams do not do that. It's 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 simple to talk about it, but it's crazy. You'd be shocked how many teams still struggle to pick the best player, especially when you're in the top 10. Yeah. How about our Seahawks? How do you think they did? Well, they always do good. The thing that I found most satisfying about what they did, and, and both I think John and Pete said it afterwards, we, we didn't make any deals. You know, they never make a pick in the first round. Yeah, but they shocked me. The best guy, they picked the best, highest-rated player on their board. What's wrong with that? That's a novel approach. It's what we just talked about. <laughs> yeah. They took the best player. He fell right to him. Guess what? He's really productive. Um, he's a tackle-making machine in college. And usually the, the history of, of somebody is a pretty good indicator of future. And the guys that make all the sacks, the guys that make all the tackles in college, guess what? They usually make them in the pros, too. So I think it's a great pick, and maybe it's not at the most position of need for them, but they're going to have a really good player who's probably going to be around a long time. So I think it's great. So why can't anyone ever peg down who exactly they are picking? It seems like to the point now where Mel Kuyper and these guys just kind of throw their hands up in the air after criticizing for so many years. He's like, well, obviously they must know what they're doing. What What is that with them? Among there's doesn't seem, It's like them and maybe the Patriots that – they just say, well, you know, just from past history, well, they obviously they knew something that the rest of us don't. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that they don't know that the the outsiders don't know is how the, these teams view their own team. When I was at ESPN, Mel and I used to converse about this. Mm-hmm. I, I used to just shake my head sometimes. I said, Mel, they don't see it that way. They don't see their own team the way you do. So they don't see um, a need to do this or a need to do that based on, what you're talking about. They don't see the value. The other thing is when Mel and Todd do it, and I understand that and give respect them, they're just one guy. Mm-hmm. They're not, there's no way they can stand up to a consensus in a room of professionals that have done this their whole lives. And they converse about every little detail of every player until they get it right. That's just, I mean, that's, that's the best. That's why they're the best in the world. That's mm-hmm. why these teams do this and don't have one guy do it for them. All right. Story time now. So it's a Saturday morning in the spring of 1997 at a fraternity house in Washington State University. One of my best friends to this day, Greg Gallup, and I watch the NFL draft every year. We get up about 8.45 in the morning for a 9 a.m. Pacific time start, because that's when the draft used to start, on a Saturday. After an early morning at the bar, and we were already excited that we had the third pick, and then you turn Rick Meyer (laughs) into the Bears' first-round pick number six overall. Then you proceed to pick future Hall of Famer and one of the best left tackles in NFL history, Walter Jones. To book in my story, my buddy Greg and I were in Canton in 2014 when uh, Walter was inducted into the Hall of Fame. This memory is because of your masterful move. <laughs> what did you like about it, Randy? You know, that's a, it, it, it's a, uh, Easier said than done story. I don't know how much time we have, but it's a podcast. Um, <laughs> we talked about this before. We have as much time as that's why I'm, I'm giving this open ended because this is what is great about podcasts is stories. So, story we, it's yeah. story time with Randy Mueller now. We had nine and 10, those were the picks that we had. I believe we had traded Rick Meyer to the Bears for the 10th pick, I believe. So, we had nine and 10, and that year we thought that the NFL draft was a six-player draft. In other words, there's a lot of good players, but we thought it was six special players. Six so first-rounders, real first-rounders, because every team, not, every team, yeah. because every team, you know, every team doesn't have, you know, 31 first-rounders, right? 
that's correct. And I would say not only that, six players that were uh, star players. Okay. I mean, you could settle on some other guys that year, but we thought there were six special players. So we knew going in that um, we, we ended up trading, I believe it was nine, or I can't remember if it was nine or ten, four, three. We did that trade like a month before the draft or a couple weeks before the draft. We knew we, by getting to three, really we wanted Sean Springs, but we would have taken um, – Daryl Russell, I think that's who the Raiders took in front of us. And I don't even remember who the first pick was, but we'd have been happy with any of those. So we go into draft morning with already three. The night before, I had a deal with Bill Parcells, who was working at the Jets at the time, to move <laughs> to move from 10 to 6. And it was going to cost us, I believe, a second or a third and a fifth. That's what it was, a third and a fifth for us to go up those five spots. And I come in draft morning and he calls me and he always used to say, hey, kid, hey, kid. And he called me kid. He said, I can't make that deal with you. And I said, I understand. He said, I'm going to make it with Tampa, but I don't think Tampa knows who they want to pick. You should call. So this is an hour before the draft starts. So I, I said, all right, well, I'm disappointed. We thought we were going to get the six. And of course, we had Walter in mind the whole time. So I call Tampa and Tampa says, yes. They said, unless one guy that we think uh, could possibly be there is there we will make the deal with you what will you give us and before i could even say the third and the fifth that i had already decided to give new york they said we'll take your third i said all right that sounds good that's a better deal than i had when i went to bed last night <laughs> so we get to them on the clock their guy is not there we end up trading up for less we save the fifth round pick we move move up with the third and we get walter at six so that year, getting Sean Springs, who was a pro bowler, as we all know, at three, and mm -hmm. Walter at six. I mean, and it happened to be at two giant positions of need for oh. us. So that's the best draft you could ever have, is to get the best players on your board to fall in positions of need for you. Well, so, well, obviously, that was a pretty good day for us. Yeah, well, because position-wise, if, if, if I remember from talking to enough football people through the years, the most important positions in a football team are the quarterback, Left tackle, protect the quarterback. Cornerback, yep. you need that shutdown corner, and you want an edge rusher. Is that correct? You got two of the top, what, three or four? Yeah, no doubt. I remember once we got Walter, Howard Mudd was our offensive line coach. You know, he's been around legendary, uh, Yeah, offensive yeah, line coach. Legendary yeah. offensive line coach. And, and I remember going in his office right after we made the, the deal and, and got Walter. And he kind of picked his head up, and I said, before you say anything, Howard, Here's the instructions. Just don't screw him up. Just stay out of his way. And I might have said a word a little stronger than screw him up. Hey, it's a podcast. You could say it if you want. Really. <laughs> well, you don't get a chance in my job when, when you draft a guy to ever say that. He's the only guy I've ever said that about, Walter Jones. And I remember saying that. Just don't blank it up, Howard. Just leave him alone. He'll be good. And we all laughed about it. And sure enough, we just stayed out of Walter's way and he kept getting better and better and the rest is history, they say. Yeah. So, you were the you were at the Seahawks from 1983 to 99. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. How much do you remember about your first one, 1983, which a lot of people consider one of the best drafts of all time? And according to John Elway in a certain pod, <laughs> or a certain uh, documentary you probably have, have seen or somebody told you about, yep. he wanted to play for the Seahawks. Yes, he did. I remember that. Yeah. What happened and here's there? How, yeah, here's how I remember it. Uh -huh. I was so low on the totem pole. I was, the, <laughs> I was the guy who went to the airport to pick people up, right? Uh -huh. His agent was Marvin Demoff, yeah. who everybody's seen throughout that film, came to Seattle to meet with Mike McCormick and Chuck Knox about just that. So I had to go get Marvin at the airport and bring him back to the office. There was so no Chuck Uber, right? Him. Yeah, right. There was no Uber, but in 1983. So... There was Mueller. <laughs> yeah, that's the first, my first encounter with the legendary Marvin Demoff, who later uh, uh, I became very close with and made a million deals on napkins around the world with him. So he told me that at that time. He said, you know, John really wants to come here, you know, because uh, I'm figuring out what the heck, why, why, why is he coming here? But also Marvin also had uh, Kurt Warner too, the running back mm -hmm. in Penn State that we did pick. So mm -hmm. um, that's the only reason I knew that, there was smoke around the John Elway deal. Why did they pick Warner over Elway? Well, I wasn't in on that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Remember, I was the Uber driver. <laughs> I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't in on those high-powered meetings back in those days. You weren't big time yet, huh? 
no, I was not. I was far from big time at any point in my career. But <laughs> Whatever. That one I was definitely not involved in. Uh, and as we all know, that would have worked out pretty good. Yes, we it would have. We had a couple chances at that. We had another one when we picked Rick Meyer. Oh, we we're going yeah, to get to that. That's we're, a whole other podcast. Uh, well, we're going to get yeah, to that. Him and, him and Drew Bledsoe were, were involved in that, and so were the Seahawks and New England. So we're, we'll, we'll save that one for next time. No, we're going to jump to it right now then, because that was one of my <laughs> questions. So while you're in the front aft office, you drafted another one of my favorite Seahawks of all time, Cortez Kennedy. Uh, rest yep. in peace, Tez. Yep. I yep. know you uh, had a really close relationship with him. But in 1992, he was named Defensive Player of the Year on a 2-14 and team and probably <sighs> kept me from having my ultimate scenario. So I'm from Walla Walla, Washington. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and Drew Bledsoe is a legend there. He was a legend. He, he's played for his dad. He Played, yep. Started as a freshman on varsity. I technically can tell people I played with him, even though I really didn't play. <laughs> yep. And so my team had a chance to, to draft my guy. But, of course, they had to, two years earlier, draft one of the most dominant defensive tackles of all time who had a career year and one of the greatest performances that a defensive tackle could have on a 2-14 and 14 team. Yep. I mean, how tough is it to be that dominant on a two and fourteen team as a defensive tackle? It's impossible. There's no way you could do that in this day and age. But that's just how destructive he was. I mean, he nobody could block Cortez back in those days. It was incredible that year, and and it's been spoken of many times. It'll probably never happen again. But it, it just showed what kind of a player uh, he was. And um, everybody, when you mention Cortez, that's the first story they tell about him was defensive player of the year on a yeah. 2 and 14 team. Unbelievable. So I can't explain it. Obviously, he did it, and uh, I think he was – I don't even think it was close, whoever was next in the voting. So that's the kind of respect he got league-wide. So it came down to New England. came down to those damn Patriots and, be- yeah. and beating the Patriots. What? So take me to that, that year, 1992. Right. Why Rick Meyer? Well, at the time, Tom Flores was our GM and head coach. Yes. Um, the two quarter, yeah, I know. Both, <laughs> both those guys were coming out. I remember Bill Parcells saying, and he was in New England at the time, I don't care which one of these guys I get. I call I'll, BS I'll, on that. Well, that's what he said at oh, the of time. Of course he did. Knowing that Rick Meyer would, you know, Catholic kid from Notre Dame, he would have been a great sell in Boston. Oh, yeah. That would have been a big deal for them. A local kid, Walla Walla, Washington, Drew Bledsoe. Oh. It was almost like he was laying it out for us. Uh-huh. And at the time, there was just no um, motivation, no nothing from, from our building that said, hey, let's let's mop this. Let's, let's figure out a way to do this. Again, I'm not in the decision-making process at this time at all. So I'm just getting bits and pieces from where the bosses come down and, and uh, I'm a little, you know, fly in the corner of the room. But I've heard stories so, in war rooms where there's the couple weeks leading up to the draft when people make the case for their guys. Scouts come in, they make the case for their guys, and, yeah. and there's those coaches or those scouts that'll do the standing on the table and say, we got to draft this guy. We're insane if we don't draft this guy. Was there yep. anybody that stood on the table and said, we're going to be, we're going to look like idiots if we let Drew Bledsoe pass, uh, not find a way to get Drew Bledsoe in the state of Washington, especially when you're dealing with the Bearings, who are terrible owners and looking for any reason to get good press and having a local kid whose dad went to UW, who, yep. who was a legend at the other major school of the, in the state to get him in the state of Washington, I'm surprised that they didn't find a way just for that reason alone. You couldn't convince uh, Elmer Fudd to, to do that. Well, it's like I said, I was not in the decision-making mm-hmm. circle at that time, but I never heard anybody make a case for doing just what you did. But I did mm. know through the grapevine that Parcells didn't care. He would have been fine with it. It seems to me like Drew Bledsoe could have been had for a cup of coffee. That might have even been before Starbucks came around. But, no, they were around. But, but uh, it wasn't going to cost us a lot. But I think the powers that be were sold that Rick Meyer wow. was going to be, you know, this and that. And that it is, that's all you needed to know. Yeah, I just, you know, I don't know. That's I, all I you needed to know. I wish I knew the answer to that one. That's for sure. You know, they worked out a little different for everybody. You know, the ironic thing is Rick Meyer and Drew Bledsoe are actually really good friends now. I know that, and I love them both. They're, they're both wine awesome guys, guys, and yeah, oh yeah, awesome guy. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. 
<laughs> my brother was a GA at Washington State when Drew was a freshman. Okay. And his 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 buddy at the time, who was another GA, is a guy named Kevin Sumlin, who's the Arizona coach. Oh yeah. Who was, as we all know, was the A and M coach. They were the two GAs. I and didn't I know that. Going over to Yakima. Uh, no, that's not right. It was uh, yeah, it was Yakima. It was to a junior college game where the um, Cougar JVs were playing a junior college team, and they this was going to be. Drew Bledsoe's coming out party might have been Wenatchee. I can't remember. Back in those days, we had the junior college league in the state state of Washington. Hmm. So I remember going to watch this kid. He was going to play the first half of, with the Cougar JVs against the JC team. And I remember someone, my brother, saying, "Mike wants us to throw the ball every play we can." I think he threw like sixty-five passes the first <laughs> half. They they sat him down after that, and the next week he started against Oregon State or something like that. Right? Yeah, on the big stage. Yeah, so that was it. So that was his coming out party was that one game against the JC. But every they were just confirming validity of everything they saw every day in Drew Bledsoe. So I'm with you. I had an affinity for him from way back. And not anything against Rick because I love Rick. But it would have been a great, great fit for Drew Bledsoe to come to Seattle. Too easy, that's for sure. Tell me a good Chuck Knox story. <laughs> Chuck Knox, and this is a, there's a little bit of a relation to the draft. So I'll keep it on that topic. He was a... Um, when the season would get over, Chuck would go to Palm Springs. He had a place there, and we wouldn't see him until a couple weeks before the draft. So he would take off, and this is before off-season programs. We didn't have any of this stuff back in those days in the 80s. So he would take off, and he would come back the week before the draft, and I remember him to this day, most years when he would come back, he would come in the draft room, and he'd have a list on a little postcard. <laughs> He'd say, what are you guys sitting around here bullshitting for weeks and weeks? He said, here's how it's going to roll out right here. <laughs> well, Chuck's buddy was Will McDonough, who was, a, you know, the infamous oh, yeah. writer of the oh, yeah. yeah. So Chuck would talk to Will through oh, his whole God. time, and he would come in with his list. And I'll be damned if he wasn't right more times than we were. And we sat around there for weeks trying to figure this shit out. And he would come in and in five minutes just deflate us to death. <laughs> You know, you guys are wasting everybody's time. You know, I'll tell you swickly third grade. Here's what we got to do. And he, he put that on. And this is exactly the way the draft would come out. So-and-so would pick this guy. So-and-so would pick that guy. So he would just get Will's Mc, Will McDonough's list. That was his draft prep and come in and, and uh, tell us what to do at that point. Well, back then, Will McDonough was was it. I remember. Oh, yeah, he was the man. Terry McDonough is uh, player personnel director for the Cardinals. Yep. One of my good friends, because my last stint before I moved back to Seattle was I, after I left ESPN, I went to Phoenix and mm -hmm. was lucky enough to start a sports radio station there and was the producer for the morning show, Doug and Wolf, uh, Ron Wolfley, uh, yep. fullback. Yeah. So he's he's become a very good friend of mine. He's a Colorado mm -hmm. for the Cardinals. So every year the Cardinals come to town, we, we always go out to dinner. And one year, Terry McDonough wanted to come out to dinner with us. So we sat around for two hours just listening to stories from Terry. And, and he would tell stories about his dad and how every coach and every uh, owner in, in, the, in the NFL would, would call his house. And this is before cell phones and voicemail yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And so one of the kids, Sean or him or Ryan, would, would answer the phone, Dad, it's it's Don Shula or... <laughs> <laughs> Dad, it's it's uh, George Hallis or you know whatever, yeah, yeah. and yeah, that's so it doesn't and also doesn't surprise me that Terry McDonough, especially after that story, even more that Terry McDonough is in the NFL. <laughs> the Ducks would have been one of those calls coming into to Will McDonough, that's for sure. Back in those days, <laughs> well, it just tells you how different the NFL is now than when Chuck Knox was with the Seahawks, doesn't it? Yeah, no doubt. I do think we can learn something from, and maybe that's why we to bring it full circle maybe that's why we kind of like the draft this year yeah it was a little more simplistic it, it kind of came back to uh, the basics of, of scouting and actually writing what you see on film and, and acting on that and so yeah i think some of some of the things that we did back in the 80s uh were pretty darn good and maybe they didn't cover everybody's ass all the time yeah they were pretty effective yeah and uh, i think there's something to be said for that so what do you remember about february 2nd 1996 February 2nd, 1996. Wow. Not much. I can barely remember what I had for breakfast. So 96, I do not remember, Ryan. You got me on that one. February 2nd, 1996 was the day that the moving vans rolled into oh. Kirkland <laughs> Seahawk headquarters. 
Oh, jeez. And yeah, Ken, Ken Baring announced that the C, he was afraid that the kingdom was going to fall apart if an earthquake hit, and so he was moving his team to Anaheim. Yep, I, I, I was in the middle of it. I remember it. What, tell me about that day. <laughs> well, that day was the culmination of a whole bunch of actions. Um, I remember um, being in the Phoenix. The Super Bowl was in Phoenix that year. The year prior to that. Mm-hmm. And I remember on Super Bowl Sunday, um, Ken's son, David, or it might have even been Ken, calling me in my room. We were staying at the Biltmore. And he called Mickey as well, Mickey Loomis, who mm-hmm. was kind of my running mate with the Seahawks. On Good the friend of yours, side. right? Yep. He said, come on up. I want to talk to you guys about something in my room. So we go up Super Bowl morning, and we were flying back that afternoon. We didn't stay for the game back in those days. We got the heck out of there. So we go up to Ken's room that morning of the Super Bowl, and he rolls out his plan as to what he thinks is going to happen. And we're like, our, our lips are on the floor, right? Like, we, we're two Northwest guys. We have no desire to go anywhere. Nobody had ever talked about this at all. And he told us the whole plan. And all I remember was turning to walk out of his room and him saying, hey, guys, this is going to happen. And by the way, just keep the team going. We keep the team up to speed. Keep us, keep us running. God. And I'm thinking, are you shitting me? <laughs> this is what's going to happen. So we fly back on the plane, and there were other staff members that were there for the Super Bowl. Um, and we ended up having to tell a few of these people. And there were a lot of tears on our flight home that day. Some, some crying. Some, some people were really upset. And then, of course, we were sworn to secrecy for the next month. Uh, you know, I guess if you say it came out the second, um, I think that was part of the discussion as the he said the moving vans are coming in a week or something like that and, and keep the team going. We moved our operation into a residence inn in Bellevue and were there. I mean, you could make a whole chapter of 30 on 30. I might just do a documentary whole, off this. Yeah, Randy. this whole month yes. of time. Yeah. But yeah, we moved into that residence inn, had our operation all set up there and really worked out of there for the next month and a half until we moved everything to L.A. and had our off-season program down there. So it was a crazy time, uh, one I'd like to forget. But, yeah, there's some things are still very vivid for me during that. Uh, what year did you say that was? 1996. 1996. I think it was Genesis' first year or second yeah. year. So yeah. He had a bunch of this stuff thrown on his plate, too, and, to this day, we still shake our heads at some of the stuff we went through. I remember signing a player out of the trunk of a car in Newport Beach after one of our workouts <laughs> down there. Me and Mickey had a cardboard box we were negotiating out of. And I remember saying, this is the NFL, boys. This is the NFL. Yeah. Crazy oh. some of the stuff. But, yeah, there was a bunch of stories out of that time frame that people would just shake their head at. So what was it like to work in that environment? It was crazy for a lifelong Seahawk kid. I mean, we yeah. started out as a ball boy. Yeah. It was unbelievable. Um, again, I, I remember we, and if you go back and look, we signed some good players. Talk about the first time that you met Paul Allen. <laughs> I don't really remember the first time I met Paul Allen, but there's a couple things early on. This was like, uh, we had computers, but I mean, email had just come into play, right? Yeah. And yeah. I remember Bob Witzick coming down to my office one day uh, and I don't think he had really bought the team yet. And he said, Hey, I got a message from Paul. And I said, okay, what, what do you want me to do? You know, I'm wet behind the ears. I'll do whatever I got to do. He said, ask Randy, this is coming from Paul. He said, ask Randy if he knows how to hit reply. And I'm thinking, oh, I don't really know what that means. <laughs> I had gotten these, I had gotten these emails from Paul. Paul throughout a few weeks, but I'd never responded to any of them. <laughs> well, it was just dumbness on my end. I didn't know anything about how no, to, yeah. that stuff worked. That was early you know, on. He said, yeah, teach Randy. He said, if he doesn't know how to reply, <laughs> teach him how to reply. <laughs> so that was really one of the first instructions. Uh, hit reply and answer when I ask you something. <laughs> and, now in, and now in offices, if you hit reply all, you get chided. You get ostracized. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I learned fast how to email. I know that. And I got to credit one of the greatest <laughs> minds in the history of our world for that one. What I was your relationship? I my logging friends back home in Idaho, but they wouldn't understand. So that's, <laughs> that was a big moment in my life. What was your relationship like with him? It was awesome. Very good. I enjoyed it. I, I watched every game with him from his suite. There were times when 
gosh, he would be on one side and Bill Gates would be on the other side of me. And you talk about a fish out of water. What is wrong with this fish? <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, think about it, really. Yeah. Growing up in a little logging town in northern Idaho, and now I have the two maybe most infamous changers of the world, you know, at that time. I wish I would have had a picture of it because I, I don't. I don't think there was ever one, but I spent many Sundays next to Paul for that reason. And, and, uh, Paul was an awesome guy. He treated me really good. Um, Paul never really told us what to do, but what, what you told him better be the way it was. And that's what I learned from him more than anything was when I tell somebody something again, they're not asking me what to say, but it better be what I say. Mm-hmm. So I remember that being uh, on occasion with Paul, things weren't like we had a plan for a game and, and we ended up making a change and we didn't do what I thought we were going to do. And he would look at me and he said, I thought we were going to do this. Well, you know, shit happens. <laughs> I couldn't really, I couldn't really say that to him, but yeah. it made me, it, it made me grow up in a hurry that again, you just better be what you say when you tell him something, because mm-hmm. that's what he's expecting. And I respected that. Yeah. So then, between that, after you left, you went to New Orleans, and then then I met you for the first time after admiring you from a, a distance for many years as you know a lifelong Seahawks fan, and we became uh, co-workers at ESPN. And then all of a sudden, one day, it's like, where's Randy? Oh, he's the GM of the Miami Dolphins. How, how did you become the GM for Nick Saban in Miami? Well, when I was the GM of the Saints, Nick was the head coach at LSU. Mm-hmm. So even though we didn't know each other, we obviously knew of each other. Mm-hmm. And at the time, Jimmy, Jimmy Sexton well, still is his agent, but I had a relationship with him as well. And I think Jimmy really connected the dots. And, and Nick and I had conversed on the phone out of the blue about this job that, you know, frankly, wasn't even open at the time. And then I remember flying to meet him in, at his place in Baton Rouge. He hadn't even moved to Miami yet. He took the job right after the season, but didn't move till after the draft. So I didn't come on board till after the draft, after he had already drafted Ronnie Brown that year and had had a draft in Miami. So I came after that. But, you know, I, I think the two of us worked really good together. That's, again, a whole other chapter in the book, right? Yeah. Um, because we were so opposite. Um, I, I, I love him. I respect him. What did they say? If it doesn't kill you, it'll make you better. He Makes made you strong. so much better. Yeah. The two two plus years I spent with him, and again this was after 25 years in the NFL, being executive of the year, being pretty successful in the NFL. When I got to him, he made me so much better that, uh, gosh, I owe him a lot. I love the guy, and obviously we've seen what he can do. You you keep in touch with him? Um, I did when I was on the road all the time for 10 years. I was the Chargers national scout after I left Miami. Mm -hmm. But yes, we talk on the phone a couple times a year. Um, I can pick up the phone and I respect him for this, call him and he'll answer. Um, we, we have a good relationship. So I enjoy trading stories with him to this day. So would you and him still be in Miami if Drew Brees was the starting quarterback for the Miami Dolphins if the doctor said yes instead of no? We talk about this, Ryan. <laughs> I, I swear to God. The world talks about this. Yeah. Well, we, him and I have had this discussion and both of us said yes. And he said we would still be there had we got a different medical opinion. There's a whole bunch of, again, another chapter to a, a book someday, and I'll never write a book, but it's pretty good if you want to sit around the campfire. The stories can get pretty good. But, yes, it's uh, that's one that I think we probably both would be there and think about the landscape of football, uh, Yeah, where it would be if he had never gone to Alabama. Well, it hurt your, your good friend Mickey Loomis and your, your former team. They wouldn't have won yeah. the Super Bowl. <laughs> it would have been different. And my brother was working for Mickey as his personnel. Oh, okay. Player. I didn't know that. So, yeah. So it would have hurt your family. <laughs> yeah. I had all kinds of ties. Yeah. And, and, uh, so, so does your yeah. brother give you really good Christmas presents to this day because of that? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I'll tell you what. How things would have been different. You owe me. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just life and times. It's different. Again, there's so many dynamics with regard to that decision alone that, you know, we just couldn't do what they did. When did you find out that Nick was leaving the Dolphins and going to be the head coach at the University of Alabama? Same time everybody else did. Oh, really? In the building, yeah, in Miami. Um, he had, you know, had said no, no, no many times, and I think it just got to the point where it was just a, a, a too good of a fit for him to pass up. 
So, I mean, I see both sides of that story. Um, but no, we all found out as a staff the same time. Wow. I think we watched it on TV oh really my. unfold in Miami because he hadn't talked to anybody, any of us about it. I probably should have known something was going to happen like that because he used to have a statue of Paul Bear Bryant on his desk. <laughs> and so I looked at that statue every day when I would be in his office hmm. and that would have been that, that I should have known that's fortuitous, right? There's something there. Yeah. <laughs> you hold a grudge against it? Me? Yeah. Oh, no, not at all. Not mm-hmm. at all. I, I think he did what he saw for the long haul, and it's turned out to be that's the best place for Yeah, him. it has. It turned yeah. out to be so it was arguably the, the greatest college football coach of all time. Yes. It was a selfish decision, but at the same time, I understand it. I mean, yeah. Sometimes, hey, we all should be so lucky as to make that call. But he's made it happen, too, since being at Alabama. I remember talking to him one time after they had won two or three championships and, and we were talking on the phone one day and I said, coach, what now? What? I mean, what do you do? You know, I mean, you've, you've done this two, three times now. What do you do to stay fresh? And he'd say, Hey, Bo, that's the hardest thing I got to think about, you know, Hey, Bo. So that's just the way he is. And he's such a driven focused person that he's found ways to keep it fresh. And uh, gosh, there's shown no signs of slowing down. Tell me about your company. What is Mules, Inc.? It is a football advisory company where uh, really I'm the sole proprietor and uh, I just offer my expertise or, or non-expertise. I guess we've told enough stories to Whatever. know that yeah. there's good and bad, you know, and uh, whether it's in evaluations, whether it's meeting with schools, staffs, helping coaches, uh, all kinds of stuff, anything football-wise, um, I just started this thing about a year ago mm-hmm. and uh, have really now come back to focus on it, mulesinc.com. And it's been uh, really kind of a cool thing. I've always wanted to do my own thing with regard to that. And so I'm hopeful that it will grow and continue to uh, give me some fun things to work on project-wise. Awesome. So now that the NFL draft is over and you can kind of focus on your wife and, and other <laughs> things outside of football – any books, uh, movies, any binging shows you're looking forward to, to uh, participating with? You know, I just started a show on Netflix last week called Peaky Blinders that everybody oh, else yeah. has watched forever. Yeah. And I think show. there's four or five seasons of it. Mm-hmm. But I just finished season one, and I'm so excited because there's four more seasons. <laughs> <laughs> so I love it. Um, you know, but I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a survivor watcher. I watch billions. I watch just like everybody else. I'll find something and get into it. And, but yeah, Peaky Blinders is my newest. When's the last time you had a haircut? <laughs> I need one. I can tell you that. I need one. I got one before I left Houston, so it was probably uh, March 1st. A lot of hats, huh? So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to probably need a ponytail here pretty soon. <laughs> well, I, I think the man bun is going to fly. But I, I'm not far from in it. Kirkland, it might. my gray hair. It might, Randy. Or if you go, if you go over to uh, Ballard or something like that, I think you'd, get, you'd, be, looking all, you'd be looking all right right there. Yeah. Someone's going to be calling me the Unabomber <laughs> if I don't get a haircut soon. Thanks to Randy for some unbelievable stories and trying to give me some answers to the questions I've had for years. Once again, follow us on Twitter and Instagram to get a preview of what that week's episode is going to be all about with our 30-second video that the Fusha Media team produces. Twitter, Pod, Instagram, Pod. And our company counts on both platforms are at Fusha Media. If you're a company and would like to be a part of this podcast or would like Fusha Media to help you design your own podcast, email me, ryan at fushamedia.com. Finally, I know that most of us have been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic in one way or another. We are working from home. Our kids are doing school from home. We can't go out to our favorite restaurant so we're doing takeout and eating it at home. But then there's the reason why we are all spending this time at home. And that's because we're trying to protect and save our loved ones like our grandparents, parents, and other family members. I had one of my ESPN co-workers on with us today. And then there's another one who I've known very well even before we both made it to the worldwide leader of sports. I've known ESPN NFL draft expert Todd McShay since 1998 when we were both starting out in sports broadcasting just out of college. 
We all found out right before the draft last week that Todd was diagnosed with the virus, and he was going to miss his first draft probably since 1998. Hang in there, Todd. Get better, and we'll see you next year. The next one doesn't have a happy ending. The ultra-popular host in Phoenix, Larry Gatos, was also a co-worker of mine for many years when we both worked for the same company in Phoenix. Larry lost his mom to this terrible virus that is ravaging the world. My condolences to Larry and his family. May she rest in peace. With so many getting sick, it's not a matter of if, but a matter of when you'll know somebody too. So, I hope you enjoyed this podcast at home. Stay safe.